All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning's text before us is about a man who was possessed by demons. But the fearful reality is, God, that we've much in common with that man. We so need your forgiveness and your healing, and we very much need a right understanding of your great, Lord, your exceedingly great holiness. And in this reading and preaching, we ask that you would show us these things, that you would show us our desperate condition, and that you would show us your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in our Sunday sermons and studies, we've come in the Gospel of Mark to his chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 is this morning's uh, text. I'll be reading from the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, and you have pew Bibles in front of you if you'd like to follow along there. Perhaps you brought your Bible, but as is our tradition as well, we'll have those words of the text up on the monitors. So please follow along with me if you would. The the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, And on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him 
and everyone marveled. Amen. Amen. That's the word of God, right? That's the inerrant and infallible word of God to us this morning. I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but if I did ask you to raise them, that if you've heard this story before, I'm sure that some of you would actually go like this, right? You'd raise your hand. It's a pretty common and popular story. And so what we just read is likely not new to you. But if you're like most people who read the Bible regularly, regardless of how many times you've looked at it, no matter how many times you've read the selections, there often seems to pop out something that appears like you've never read it before. It's like, where was that the first 10 times I looked at it? That's one of the most unique and wonderful things about our Bible. It's a characteristic that it shows us new things again and again. It never gets old. The Holy Spirit keeps showing us stuff in it. Even texts that you've previously read, maybe even previously understood, they often become richer and more meaningful on subsequent readings. And that's what we just prayed for, by the way. We just asked God that he would show us ourselves in light that we've never seen ourselves before. Or perhaps even things that we've forgotten about ourselves. So this morning, I want to step through this story, and then if we have time, I'm going to revisit some of the verses, which you may find more challenging. But I'll still make sure that all of those readings and verses are, uh, of course, quite glorifying to God. This is his word. It's not about me, and frankly, it's not even about you. We read the Bible because it glorifies our Heavenly Father. There are many lessons in this story and much drama, It's a good story. It's a good story for children and for adults. But we're limited by time, and I think we're also limited by our attention spans. Okay, so I'm going to try to stay on track and be, I guess, somewhat efficient this morning. Ultimately, the story is not about demon possession. It's not even even about authority or about pigs. It's instead absolutely about us. And about the gospel. All right, so let's get to it. Verse 1. Jesus, he's been traveling the region around the Sea of Galilee. He had just calmed the storm in chapter 4. You remember a couple Sundays ago, we preached on that. We now find Jesus and his disciples, they're pulling their boat onto the shore of an area known as the Gerasenes. The towns, by the way, of Gadara and Gerasa. These were two of the ten cities known as the Decapolis. These two towns, Gadara and Gerasa, they were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and are likely why that area became known as, or that country, that region, as the Gerasenes. You may be helped by verse 2, or with verse 2, to know that this story is also contained in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also that they have slight variations within those recollections and how they're recounted. Most notably, most differently, is Matthew's gospel. Matthew states that there were two men that approached Jesus. But you should not see this, Edgemont, as any kind of conflict or contradiction. For if there were two demon-possessed men, there were surely also one. All right, we have to trust both Matthew's and Mark's recounting of this event 
and all the gospel events by the perspective of the author. And since we know that scripture is without error, right, it's inerrant in its original writings, it has no errors in it, it's the word of God. Because of that, these variations do not do injustice to the text, to its veracity, to its truth. There's nothing about one man versus two men that changes this encounter, the lessons to be learned, or the infallibility of the text. So in Mark's verse 2, Jesus encounters a man who's more like, frankly, more like an animal than a human by this point. He was possessed by many demons, and he was no longer able to live in society. The proper place for him to not interfere with the community was therefore on the outskirts of the town, right? That's where cemeteries were located back in the day of the first century church, away from people, away from the living and within the tombs. The cemetery was appropriate, I think, for this man, for it wasn't just because it could isolate him from, uh, from the daily society, but also since his entire being was possessed by those who represented death and those who were champions of death. Right? It's a perfect place for him to be, in the, in the grave area, in the place of the dead. In verses 3 and 4, we're told, we're informed that nothing could hold this man, nothing could bind him. He was, if you will, he was out of control. So strong were the demons inside of him that even iron shackles could not restrain him. Think about that a second, right? The amount of, the amount of strength that's necessary to fully break chains and shackles. Evidently, we're told that people had tried to control him, but they just couldn't. I tried to think about what this would be like. I mean, the only thing I could come up with remotely close to it was someone who was maybe strung out on drugs, right? But even that comparison falls short because even a single demon is stronger than opiates, and here we have a lot of them. Also, what's implied here is that sometime earlier in this man's life, he actually had friends. Apparently, these were those who at least cared for him enough to try to bind him. They tried to keep him around with a guard and with chains. They, he was shackled, but at least they didn't kick him out of the community. But coupled with verse 19, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, Jesus told this man that he should return to his friends, right? And he should go home and tell the story of his redemption, of his healing. In verse 5, we learn, it's really not surprising, but we learn that this man was not a calm person. There's no quiet conversation with this guy. He's always crying out. They say he's crying out at night, so we know he's not sleeping. He's hollering from around the tombs, which are carved into the hills. In Matthew's version, he says that the demons were so ferocious in this, inside this man that people couldn't even pass by the area without him attacking them. And so here in the same verse 5, we learn something about these demons' boss. Right? We learn something about Satan. We learn that he's a destroyer. We learn that elsewhere, but it's right here. He's a destroyer. Not only have the workers of Satan taken over this man's body and caused him to be ostracized, right, to become an outcast from society, but these demons have turned this man inward against his own self. They caused him 
to hurt himself. Being possessed by demons, this man has demonstrated a hatred for God. He was created in God's image, but he's now forced to live amongst the dead in the tombs. But also, these demons have demonstrated a hatred against others. We've already mentioned that the possessed man would attack passers-by. That's not love, right? That's hatred. And now we see that he was self-loathing as he would mutilate his own body. He would cut himself with stones. And so it is, by the way, that all of those, all of us, anyone who is outside of Christ, maybe not displayed like this graphically, you know, in the story today, but all those are out all those who are outside of Christ hate God. They hate others and they hate themselves. There's a whole sermon or two on that, but suffice it for now to say that if you are outside of Christ, then you're an enemy of God. And as God's enemy, you will not love others as you would love yourself. Right? You're looking inward. And as God's enemy, you don't repent. You continue to live with your sin and with your guilt, and you're saying that you would rather, frankly, live as you want. You are your own God. You want to live now and in the temporary. You prefer, if we're honest, you prefer to forfeit your soul to hell for eternity over that which you would like to do now, which is serve yourself. Hatred for God, hatred for others, and hatred for yourself. This is a picture of the man or the woman who does not have Christ as his or her Savior. Now, in verse 6, the demon-possessed man who was a ways away, probably on the hillside amongst the tombs, he didn't go hollering at Jesus necessarily and the disciples. He doesn't attack them, at least. Instead, he runs up to Jesus and he falls down before him. He prostrates himself, like we all will. He prostrates himself before the King of kings and Lord of lords, before God himself. Now, clearly, this is an admission of status, a response to superior authority. It's also a reminder to us that God has Satan on a leash. Satan can't do whatever he wants. God gives him permission to act. That the devil and his workers can do nothing apart from God or with the permission of God is actually biblical. Of course, in verse 7, seven, rather, the demons, they don't address Jesus in a normal conversational voice. This isn't a nice coffee. They've caused this poor man to always be crying out. And so they speak to Jesus in a loud voice. Even though they're on the ground directly right in front of him, they're screaming, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, what are they afraid of? Apparently, this is in response to Jesus' commanding them to come out of the man. Right? That's verse 8. But like a frightened child who's sternly told to come here, right? Come here when they know that they've done something wrong. These demons want to know what they're in for. They know that they've given cause to be tormented by God. And they fear that. I find that kind of ironic. 
I don't know if you've missed this, but these demons have been tormenting this man significantly for a long time in an extreme way, and yet they want mercy. Do not torment me, they cry out to Jesus. But indeed, that day is going to come. Matthew 25, 41, it tells us of their final and eternal destination, the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's their destiny. So not only are these demons afraid of Jesus, right? They know that Jesus, let's not forget that Jesus put their boss in his place, right? Satan, when he was in the wilderness during his 40-day temptation, and so these demons know what they're up against. And they rightly describe Jesus as the son of the most high God, which, by the way, is a very Gentile title. Maybe we'll address why that is one day. But nevertheless, the demons, they get it right. They get it right by addressing Jesus as to who he is, his person, which is more than the disciples could claim. You'll remember from last couple weeks ago sermon, the disciples, after the calming of the storm, they said, who is this man? Who is this man who controls nature? When Jesus affirms the demon's claim of superiority, he then asks them their name. Even today, by the way, but certainly in ancient times, to know someone's name is and was a sign of authority. The inferior person would refer to the superior person by title, right? But the superior person would refer to the lesser by name. I'm reminded, by the way, of that. Maybe you are too. Every time we go to the doctor's office, we refer to our physician as doctor. And they may refer to you as, or me as, James or Mr. McDougal. They don't refer to me as reverend because they're in the position of superiority. Anyway, so Jesus demands the name, and the man, he submits, because he's the lesser. He knows this. He's already on his knees and on his face. He says, my name is Legion. Now, in Roman armies, a legion could comprise up to 6,000 people, 6,000 soldiers. And so the point to this name is to convey that there's not a single demon in this man. There's a lot. Many, many demons. And that's no, excuse me, no doubt why this poor man could not be restrained even with irons and under guard. Many demons. But for some reason, we don't know for sure, the text doesn't tell us, the demons, they don't want to leave that area of the Gerasenes. Verse 10 says, And he begged him, in other words, legion, begged Jesus. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So they begged Jesus to let them go into pigs. This sermon's not about pigs. If you're excited about why, why pigs and that sort of thing, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. But I will talk about it just a little bit because it's there in the text. Why would demons want to go into pigs? Well, they were there, right? That's a... It's one reason. Probably not important. Frankly, it's mostly speculation on my part, but the demons knew that pigs were unclean according to the law of Moses, and maybe they thought they were, since they were also unclean, they'd be at home there, right? The unclean in the unclean. 
Or maybe they thought that they wouldn't be disturbed in pigs. Why would Jesus perform an exorcism on a pig? And so there they would escape torment, perhaps. Again, that's just what I would call a devotional thought. But let's at least note that there is nothing, there's nothing inherently sinful about a pig. It's an animal. God created the animals. And we know from 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, that God does not create anything bad. Right? Nothing sinful. So Jesus gives the demons permission. He says, okay, go to the pigs. And they do. But the demons, they're not at home there either. I don't want to further surmise why that is, but something makes the pigs commit suicide. They stampede off the cliff. The result, you can picture this yourself, is some 2,000 pig carcasses in the water, perhaps floating up on the beach or lashing up against the cliff's basin. Must have been quite a sight. Of course, such a scene was not only uncommon, I'm not sure that it ever had happened before, so it's more than rare, but surely it was shocking. The herdsmen who were now out of a herd, right? They had no more pigs. They spread the word of this event. You can imagine the reaction of the community here. They were saying, I got to see this for myself. I have to go out and witness this. And so they did. We're told that the people from the country and the city, they made their way out to the area of the tombs. And what did they find? A healed man. They found a man of order. A man who was in disorder, right? A man in his right mind, like the disciples. Like the disciples, they were no longer afraid of the storm once it calmed, but they were instead afraid of the one who was Lord over the storm, right? The disciples, after the, they were, they were frightened out of their minds about the storm, but once it calmed, they were more afraid of the one who calmed it. But these people like that, They were no longer afraid of the demon-possessed man. You know, they wouldn't even go out there because they were attacked. But now that he's in his right mind, of course, they're not afraid of him anymore, but they are afraid of the one who has authority over the demons. They saw that this man, Jesus, was more powerful than that, and it scared them. Remember, many people tried to, to restrain this man, and they couldn't. And here, Jesus, without sword, Probably didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, the man's gone. Why? I mean, the, the, the demons are gone. And why is that? Because Jesus has authority over them. So what? I mean, why would that scare people? Why did they have to fear? What did they have to fear, rather, by a, a powerful Jesus who dealt with demons? Why would they not want to be around that man? They weren't possessed. And so they had no cause to fear Jesus. They didn't even have to deal with him. They didn't have any business with the Lord. Or did they? Always, always, when sin meets holiness, there's a conflict. Ultimately, God, who is perfect holiness, will put away all sin and death. But in the meantime... Sinners resist being in the presence of the holy. They don't like it. It's 
not in my text this morning, but my old boss over at Old Providence, he wouldn't tell people he was a pastor because it made people uncomfortable. He said it was in human resources, which I find funny. But anyway, they're uncomfortable there. They feel like, yeah, you're going to nitpick around my sin or I might be exposed or something. And that's what holiness does. It exposes them. It pulls back the covers of darkness and it reveals evil character. Right? It reveals impure motives and wicked schemes and blackened hearts. Nobody wants to be known as that. Some examples in Scripture of these encounters, or at least one anyway, is what Isaiah experienced when he was called by God to be a prophet. Right? This is the Old Testament, Isaiah. He had a vision wherein he was caught up in the heavenly courts, right? the heavenly temple of God, to undergo his commission as a prophet. And in that experience, Isaiah saw, he experienced the holiness of God. He saw it as pure and just, I mean, perfectly pure and perfectly just. And he pronounced woe upon himself. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah cries out, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, I'm lost, I'm undone, perhaps your Bible might say, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And that scared him. The Apostle Peter, this might have come to your mind. The Apostle Peter experienced the very same thing. It's recorded for us in Luke 5, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 5. When he witnessed Jesus' miracle, after toiling all night and having caught nothing, The Lord told Peter to go out and cast again. Different side of the boat. Didn't really make much fishing sense, but he did. You know the story, right? So many fish were caught up that the net began to tear. The mesh came apart. The boat was full of fish, and it began to sink a little bit. And what did Peter do in that moment? Did he he get down and thank the Lord? Did he whoop and holler for joy over his good fortune? No. He recognized the majesty of the miracle worker, and it scared him because in comparison, Peter saw his own wretchedness. He could do nothing other than want to get his sinful self away from a perfectly holy God. Luke 5, verse 8, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Perhaps the best foreshadowing of these people in the Gerasenes, wanting to get away from Jesus, it's really found all the way back in Genesis. Chapter 3, verse 10, in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, they wanted nothing to do with God either. They were now unholy. They were hiding, and they feared him. And that's what mankind, we, Covington, Virginia, U.S., world, that's what humankind has been doing ever since that event in the Garden of Eden. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I think it's interesting to note that Jesus complied with that. He did. He left. He didn't force himself upon them. Verse 18 says that he got back into the boat. He wasn't going to cast pearls, himself, the word of God, 
bread of life. He wasn't going to cast that to swine. No pun intended. But surely the Lord had accomplished already what he had come for. He was going to restore this man, and he did that. So mission accomplished. As I mentioned earlier, this previously demon-possessed man had once had friends. And despite wanting to accompany Jesus, the Lord sent them home to his old neighborhood and to his old friends. He was there to be a witness to grace, to the Lord who was full of mercy, who had full mercy upon this guy, who healed him. He was to be um, a walking billboard, if I could say it that way. He was not told to go and be an apostle. He wasn't called to do that. He wasn't commissioned to go be a missionary to Spain or India or some faraway land. He wasn't to confront the Pharisees in Jerusalem. No. He was simply to go home and to live there as a daily visible testimony to the power of God, to God's goodness. This healed man was to be exhibit A, if you will, of what John the, John the Baptist and what Jesus had been proclaiming, that the kingdom of God has come. It's arrived in the fullness of Jesus. And that's the gospel, by the way. Right? This is a story of the gospel. Ephesians 2 summarizes it this way. It gives us more detail, and because of time, I'm not going to have to, I'm not going to be able to unpack this all this week. We're going to have to look at it more next week, but for now, let me read to you what that says in Ephesians 2 and how it applies to our Mark 5 text this morning. It's the gospel. It's what you were before you encountered Christ, before you came to a saving knowledge of him. And it's what you are now in Christ, and it's what you are, excuse me, what you will be eventually as a result of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says this, And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the, like the rest of mankind. All right? That's what the believer once was. His old condition Dead. And now verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, that's the present condition of the believer in Christ. Saved by grace, made alive by Christ. And then verse 7 of that same Ephesians chapter 2, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Right? That's the future of the believer. Immeasurable riches in Christ. And I'm five minutes over already. So I'm going to wind this up. So far, we've looked at all the verses comprising the story, but there's much more to unpack, and I am going to continue that next week. But for now, please take away this, that apart from Christ, you are very much 
even though you might want, not want to see yourself like this, you're very much like the man in this story. Maybe not demon-possessed, but nevertheless separated from God. At least you once were. If you're in that condition, you're at war with God, not able to please him, not able to love others, and ultimately, as I said earlier, hating yourself. The person in that condition is similarly in the tombs, in desperate need of healing. And without that healing, the demons and their master Satan will have his way. He will, because that's your nature. You're in the dark. You're not alive. You're dead. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that we only have one hour this morning, and this story is far more rich and far more to glean from it. And so we ask that you would not only bless us this afternoon or this morning with, um, with your presence, if we've, as we've already prayed, Lord, but that you would return us next week to hear the rest of this story, whether we're members or regular attenders or visitors, God, you invite us. In fact, you command us to worship you on the Lord's day. And so if it be your will, please return us to the sanctuary to continue to worship you and to hear further about this story and about what we can do through Christ, what we can accept in Christ freely by grace to have ourselves restored to you. Let us not pretend, Lord, that we're okay. We're not. Show us our sin and cause us to appreciate the reality of sin's destruction and as well your saving grace so that we run to you so that we lay ourselves before you and live in the bosom of Christ, beginning by your grace, Lord, even now, today, and evermore. It's for your glory, Lord, that we pray these things and that we read your word, and we ask that you would cause us to go forth today seeking you and that you would respond by being with us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.